The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you now to take your Bible and open with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. You can find that on page 258 of a blue pew Bible, but you do want to open your Bible uh, with me, whichever Bible that you have there in front of you, to open up with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, we are in our third week of a fall sermon series, Reverence and Awe, the beauty of Christian worship, where we're looking at aspects of Christian worship. And this morning, we're looking very generally at the idea of uh, what we do when we worship God, particularly, you know, what are the kinds of things that we should be doing? And are there things that we should not be doing? And why do we do what we do? And why do we not do what we do? Don't do, and those are the issues that we're thinking about uh, this morning, and I want to let you know far in advance that uh, this morning's sermon is what could be called more of a topical sermon in the sense that we're going to be scanning a variety of texts to center around one main point that we're looking at. So you've got those texts there on your outline uh, in front of you, so not just Second Samuel, but also Leviticus, Exodus, Colossians, and several other places. If you can keep up flipping around, great. If if uh, if you're concerned about that, no problem. But there the texts are before you. But our main text that we're spending some moments in here is in Second Samuel chapter six. And so if you've got your Bible open, we want to hear God's word. So let's first pray and ask His blessing upon it. Great God, we bow before you and we thank you for your word, which we believe to be living and active. We need your word to illuminate our lives, Lord, for there's so much that we don't understand. So many things that if left to our own wisdom, we would never be able to walk faithfully. And so be with us this morning, Lord, in the preaching of your word, in the hearing of your word, to guide us to a correct understanding to illuminate our lives that we might live in a way that honors you and worship you in a way that you desire. And so come and speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word from 2 Samuel and chapter 6 in verses 5 through 11. This is the word of God. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it inside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom 
and all his household. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let me encourage you to keep your Bible open there and in several other places that we're spending time in this morning. And we'll be coming back to give some explanation to this text in in just a moment. But the question that we're thinking about this morning is, uh, how should we worship God? How should we worship God and does God care? What is it that determines what we do and don't do? If you've ever wondered going up and down the bulletin on the Lord's Day, is, are these elements of the service just some kind of superfluous additions and actions and repetitions that we do in our service, these, these elements of our worship service? Why do we do these things and why does it matter? And why is it that we don't do other things? And why does that matter? This is the, the kind of the realm of thought that we're giving to the idea of uh, Christian worship and, and what we do. Now, every single Christian believer believes that there is an acceptable and unacceptable way of worshiping God. Everybody believes that. They might not think about it in these particular categories of what we should and shouldn't do, but everyone believes that there are things that are and are not appropriate. And every time I think about that, it makes me... I remember doing youth ministry when I was in college and uh, somewhere along the line I had some uh, teenagers who, who picked up the idea of referring to God as dude in their prayers. Uh, hey dude. Now uh, put, that, put that aside, not to comment on that now. That speaks to the relative capacities of their youth minister at the time, most likely more than anything else, which was me, so I'm quite responsible for that. But regardless of what you think about that, regardless of where you draw the line in terms of you know what we do and don't do and what is and is not acceptable, everyone has an idea of uh, a rule, okay? Now, maybe your rule for worship is, is guided by preference okay you want to do what you like to do when it comes to church and the things that you don't like to do you don't want to have to do them so your rule might be preference now if preference is the rule of the day then we just do whatever everybody else wants to do it's basically uh, crowdsource directed worship and we do whatever the masses want to do now that's one rule another rule might be pragmatism some people say that pragmatism is the ultimate rule for worship, meaning some church somewhere else did this and it drew a massive crowd, so we should do it too, so that we get a crowd like that. Pragmatism is the rule that says do whatever to get as many in the door as possible, so pragmatism is one rule. Or another rule is uh, guided by uh, the worship of whatever has been done in the past. The past rules worship decisions where you say, uh, Pastor, this is the way we have always done this. Therefore, that's the rule. Or perhaps one more even is some people think that so long as God says, uh, uh, so long as he doesn't say you can't do this, it's, it's open-ended. Meaning, as long as it isn't prohibited, it's totally fair game. Now, I want you to take that thought and put it away because I'm going to come back to that for a moment. Because that, that rule for worship opens up the door to infinite amounts of insanity. 
So long as God says it's okay, or as long as he doesn't say it's not okay, it's fair game. So there's all these rules for worship, okay? Preference and pragmatism and the past and all these different things. But, but, are these the things that God is pleased with? That's what we're thinking about this morning. Our, our, our tradition, our church tradition, our reformed tradition, Presbyterianism, we believe that the Bible teaches that the rule for worship is we should do the things that God has prescribed for us to do, called us to do. That is, that we worship according to God's direction from the Bible and not something else. And if you want a summary of this, you can look on your handout there and see the words from our Westminster Confession, chapter 21, stated positively that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is established by God himself, and also negatively so, that God is not to be worshipped in any other way than that prescribed in Holy Scripture. Okay, so here's the big thought this morning. And if you've never given consideration to this, I really want to invite you into the thought of how do we know if God is pleased with our worship? And do we care whether or not He is pleased at all? Or is that not even in the realm of our thoughtfulness? So we're thinking about worship this morning and the kind of worship that God is pleased with. And so first of all, we want to see this principle. And this principle that the Westminster Confession speaks about here comes out of the Scriptures, and one text in particular that gives evidence to this is our text from 2 Samuel and chapter 6. So see there in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that Uzzah makes a grave error. Now as you're looking at that text and as you're remembering the reading of it, um, David responds with anger to this situation in verse 8. Uh, Uzzah stretches out his hand and touches the ark, and David gets angry because Uzzah is struck down. I want to say very, very, very first of all that this is a story in the Old Testament that is, of course, true because we believe the Bible is true, but this is one of the most perfect illustrations of the fact that if someone were making the Bible up, you would never put this story in the text. This is not a marketable God, if you are making things up. So here it is talking about the Ark of the Covenant, which is what this is talking about. And most people think about Ark. They immediately go to Indiana Jones movies. But, but think clearly and biblically about this. The Ark of the Covenant was a three by two by two box made of acacia wood and plated with gold. It was one of the most important aspects of Israelite religion in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. It represented God's presence among his people for lots of reasons because the, the, the God said that the ark was the footstool of God, meaning that, that heaven was God's throne and he set his feet upon the ark and so the ark represented the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was also representative of the, the reconciling grace that God gave to his people where once a year on the Day of Atonement they would, they would pour the blood of the Lamb upon the, the cover of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, upon the lid of the covenant, Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant held the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. So the Ark of the Covenant is a significant piece of the Israelite religion. It represented all these things and... As Israel was a nomadic people traveling around through the wilderness, God gave very particular directions as to how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported. That it was to be carried by the Levites from the Kohathite clan to carry without carts, but on rods. 
So all that is in the background of this text where the Ark of the Covenant had been displaced from Jerusalem and David is overseeing the Ark of the Covenant being brought back to Jerusalem. But along the way, there's a stumbling of the cart, there's a stumbling of the oxen, and the Ark of the Covenant goes to fall off the cart. And you can imagine that everyone who is witnessing this takes a great big hush and Uzzah stretches out his hand to stabilize the Ark so as it not to fall on the ground and Uzzah is struck dead. Now, there are a million questions that come out of that text. But what should be absolutely clear in the text is that God is not a God to be trifled with. God is not a God to be trifled with. What God commands is to be obeyed. He is to be both considered to us real and holy, and we are to do what he says. And behind the backdrop of this text is numerous instructions as to what should have taken place in this context. And R.C. Sproul is the one who famously says that Uzzah's grave error is that he thought his hand was more pure than the ground that the ark should fall upon. But the point being that we want to draw out of this text is that God is the one who sets the limits and the terms on how he is to be approached. You know, it may be the case that someone would want to take this text and uh, try to explain away the occurrence. Try to say, well, this is mystery or this is myth or it's a fable or it's not really true. No, we must reckon with this reality. That, that God does not want us or he does not require us to bring him down to our level so that we can make him more relatable and palatable to us. The problem with most religion in the world is that we want to bring God down instead of realizing who he is. In fact, every time you bring God down, what you're doing is actually making a God who is more comfortable for you, more palatable, and the Bible calls that idolatry because you're making a God who is false. The Bible calls us not to bring God down to our level, but to lift our eyes to see Him as He really is. And this is a text that communicates to us that our God is holy. Now, this principle is all throughout the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. We also see it in the book of Leviticus in chapter 10, which is the strange fire text where Nadab and Abihu, who were priests who were supposed to offer sacrifices and incense a particular way, offered what the Leviticus chapter 10 calls unauthorized incense, or it's also translated as strange fire, meaning God commanded them to do this, and they said, well, we want to do it this way. And what happened to Uzzah is the same thing that happened to Nadab and Abihu, actually. And if you look at that text in Leviticus chapter 10, God communicates to Moses that when people approach him, they must regard him as holy and set apart and exalted. And so when we approach God, the question that we should be asking is, is God pleased with this? Is God pleased with this? So just very practically, this is an incredibly practical question. The, the fundamental principle of what guides Christian worship is not 
what will draw a crowd is not what will entertain people the most, is not what will make them feel the best about their day so they can have a great week. The most important question when we gather together in Christian worship is, what is God pleased with? So I told you that I, I have something here for you, which is the latest illustration of this whole idea of, you know, as long as God doesn't say you can't do it, you can do whatever you want. Maybe you've seen this. This, uh, this is happening uh, in a church uh, down, down south where they're doing a four-week sermon series called Rasselin. W-R-A-S-T-L-I-N apostrophe no G. Rasselin. Uh, where they've uh, contracted WWE superstars. Ric Flair, The Undertaker, The Million Dollar Man, and Sting to come and be interviewed, demonstrate some of their moves, and... Okay, now, you might be saying, hey, that sounds, you know, kind of uh, interesting. Well, it, it surely is interesting. Uh, but, you know, forgive me for being, you know, so, so cold water here, but is it appropriate? That kind of spectacle, that kind of, is, is God pleased with that? Is church for entertainment's sake? When you grasp the fundamental principle that worship exists for God and not for me, you've taken a massive step forward in your Christian maturity. In fact, the Bible is filled with all these directions that when God calls us to worship him, he does not call us to worship him with ambiguity, but with great direction. For example, think of all the Exodus narratives of building the tabernacle. If you've ever tried to read through the Old Testament straight through or gotten into the book of Exodus and you start getting into the second half where they're building the tabernacle and Moses gives all these dimensions and, 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 and drawing prescriptions and the temple is to be this high by this wide by this long and the curtains to be this high by this high by that long and build the Ark of the Covenant by these exact dimensions over and over and over, what you see is this rep repeated phrase in Exodus 25 verse 9 which says, according to the pattern, according to the pattern that was shown to you. That is to say that God cares. God cares to be specific and God cares to be exact and God cares to give direction. And when he gives that direction, he expects that it be followed. Now, this is not just an Old Testament principle, although oftentimes I think people want to kind of push it back into the Old Testament and leave it there. But actually, if you were to look in the book of Colossians in chapter 2, 23, what Paul refers to this idea, he calls it man-made religion, self-made religion. Religion that says, I want to I have God on my terms and do it my way and then expect that God just be satisfied with whatever I come up with. He calls it self-made religion. And he said that that's not the standard by which we approach God. Religion has its source in who God is, true religion and who God is and what he commands rather than what we want. And so here again, the, the principle that we affirm that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is established by God himself and that God is not to be worshiped in any other way than that is prescribed in Holy Scripture. Now, again, to some people that might seem emphatically dusty and old-fashioned. But it is inherently biblical that the only authority that we have from God is a prescribed authority. And we all know how prescriptions work. Prescriptions represent an authoritative declaration from an authority source. 
And God prescribes for us what we do on the Lord's Day in our worship services. Now, why, why do you care? Why should you care about that? Well, first of all, because we want to offer God worship that he's pleased with rather than just assuming that we can do whatever we want here and God's okay with it because it may be the case that he is not and that he's actually quite displeased with our worship. So we want to offer to God worship that is pleasing to him. But do you, my, my, my real concern in all of this, and I think what the scriptures are drawing out and what the Westminster divines certainly believe, is that I or any other worship leader cannot force you to worship God in a way that is out of line with the Bible. Meaning I can't force you to do something or infringe upon your conscience in such a way and then make you feel bad if you don't do it. You want an illustration of this? What this looks like is I've attended certain ecumenical services and this is not just about worship style. It has nothing to do with worship style whatsoever. But I've had worship leaders who tell me, uh, everyone raise your hands. You have to raise your hands while we sing this song. No, I don't, actually. But the infringement of conscience comes when it is said, if you don't raise your hands, then God is unhappy with you or displeased with you or, or something like that. It is not a command of Scripture to sing only with hands raised. It is not against Scripture to sing with hands raised, of course, but it is not an imposition of Scripture that you must sing with hands raised. And so if I were to stand up here and tell you, you have to raise your hands while we sing this hymn, you would have to look at me and say, no, I don't have to. This principle that comes out of the Scripture protects the honors of God, but it also guards your conscience from being forced to do something in worship that God has not commanded you to do. It is for the protection of the liberty of our conscience. And if anyone should understand this, Americans should know this. Because this was the fundamental principle that guided the, the pilgrims to come to America to be able to worship God according to Scripture and conscience. They did not want to be forced to worship God in a way they didn't agree with. Now this issue, this principle is so important because it reflects the kind of worship that, that Lord willing, we want to have here in, in Edgington. And this is by no means a, a, a comment in regard to any other church or any other denomination or practice or style of worship. It is to say that because we believe the Bible instructs a certain kind or pattern or uh, tone of worship, we seek to reflect that. So then, here you have this principle that God is to be worshipped the way God says he wants to be worshipped and not another way. So then, what does that look like? Here's the application of all this. The application is the, the answering the question, well, what does God say? What should we be doing? What does Christian worship look like? And you know, one of the beautiful things about this is that faithful Christian worship happens all around the world in all different kinds of churches and all different kinds of denominations because it doesn't matter the kind of building you're in or the name of the church on your door. What matters is the, the spirit and truth of the worship offered. And so what does God say about the kind of worship that we should do? Well, in Christian worship, we must do these things. Meaning, these aren't optional. These are required elements of Christian worship. Meaning, I, I don't get to sit down at my desk and, and come up with something else. We must do these things. One, two, three, four, five, six of them. Very clear things that come out of the text. First of all, in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul instructs Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And so, faithful Christian worship involves 
reading the Bible. Would you think of such a simple point? Reading the Bible. But when Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, meaning read the Bible out loud before the congregation of people. It doesn't say how many verses need to be out of the Old Testament, how many be out of the New Testament. We've read portions of Scripture from the book of James, one verse. We've also read 70 verses at a time from 1 Samuel. Is one right and one wrong? Not at all. Read the Bible, the Bible teaches in worship. From the text of the sermon, yes, absolutely, but also beyond the sermon text. That's why oftentimes we begin our worship service with the opening words of Scripture and then maybe a, a psalm to open our service because we want the Bible to be read and heard as an element of Christian worship. And that's significant because you hear a million things throughout the week, don't you? People's opinions and their so-called authorities and all the different things that we hear in the world today. Uh, what we need to hear is what God has to say. Let God speak. Read the scriptures. We read the Bible. Secondly, we preach the Bible. We preach the Bible as a second element of Christian worship. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, Paul instructs Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. The word of God preached is the central reality for Christian worship. What comes before it builds toward it. What happens after it is in response to what God communicates through his preached word. Where we believe in biblical preaching. Where we work through texts of scripture. Sometimes verse by verse, book by book, section by section. Preaching what Acts chapter 20 calls the whole counsel of God. Biblical preaching doesn't mean that I read a book from the New York Times and then share my thoughts about it. That's not preaching. Preaching in the context of Christian worship is opening the scriptures and then letting it come out in terms of application and explanation where the point of the sermon is the point of the text. Now again, sometimes there's room for things like this. This is topical preaching. This is different from exegetical, expositional preaching where we go verse by verse. But all that to say that the point of the sermon comes from the text itself, not from something that I've fashioned up when I was sitting in my office on Tuesday. Faithful biblical Christian worship involves faithful biblical preaching. Third, in Christian worship, we must sing the Bible. That might sound like a strange concept. Sing the Bible. What Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Sing. Biblical singing. You might be interested to know that one of the, the big changes in the church during the, the 16th century was a move towards congregational singing. It didn't used to be the case that the congregation would stand and sing. They would hire professionals to come up front and lead singing and you sit and listen. The Reformation brought about a Reformation not just in, in biblical teaching, but also in biblical singing, where the, the music of God was put back into the mouths of God's people, and they were encouraged to stand up and raise their voices in praise to God. That means that you don't have to be a professional to sing in church. It doesn't even matter if your voice is any good or not. What matters is that you stand to sing the praises of God and singing the Bible, meaning uh, truthful songs. 
music that builds up, that reflects truths from Scripture. You know, earlier when we sang, Holy, 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 that's the, the song of heaven from the book of Revelation. We're singing biblical truths to our God and to encourage one another. The words that we sing matter, biblical, truthful words. Uh, I, uh, I saw a couple weeks ago that uh, one, of my, one of my friends, uh, he had his church sing, and um, I'm not likely to do this, they sang uh, Bon Jovi, uh, living on a prayer. He was preaching about prayer, okay? Now, not likely to ever happen. And when I say not likely, I mean it's never going to happen. Uh, all that to say, though, that we sing biblical truths in biblical music, whether it's contemporary, whether it's old, and you should know that every hymn in our hymnal is considered contemporary in a historical sense. Oftentimes people get all caught up on contemporary music or not. That's not the issue. We sing truthful words. We sing the Bible. The next thing is that biblical worship involves praying the Bible. Praying the Bible. Matthew says in, or Jesus says in Matthew 21 verse 13 that his father's house is to be called a house of prayer. And so what we do when we gather together is pray. But how should we pray? Well, we're directed from Scripture in all sorts of ways that we're to pray for kings and those in seats of authority. We're pray to, to pray for the weak and those in need. The Bible doesn't say how long the prayer should be, how short, um, how often we should pray the Lord's Prayer or not, whether I should pray in the pastoral prayer extemporaneously or from notes. The Bible doesn't give direction on those things, but it does say that we should pray. Worship without prayer is cereal without milk. It involves the real thing. We must pray in biblical worship. Secondly, or sorry, finally actually, is we see the Bible. Read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, which you, you catch the emphasis, of course, is biblical worship. But finally, we see the Bible. That is to say, we, we observe the sacraments together, which are called the visible words of Scripture, where God has given to us in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, a visible word where he communicates to us in ways that we can see and taste and touch gospel realities that seal the promises of God to our hearts so that we might realize them more fully than just hearing. So in two weeks when we observe the Lord's Supper together, you're going to see the promises of God in Scripture realized through bread and cup. Now, what comes out of this in terms of Christian worship and the kind of worship that we want to have and the kind of worship that God is pleased with is a million more questions. There are a thousand questions that get answered, uh, not necessarily by rigid biblical principle, but just by good consequence. What time should the worship service be? How long should it be? How long should the preacher preach for? Which reminds me of the Puritan sermon. You know how you get it first, second, thirdly. The Puritan sermon that had where he said, and now 26thly in my sermon. Uh, I'm not going to give 26 points to my sermon, right? Uh, but how long should the sermon be? How long should the worship be? What kind of clothes should you wear? These are matters of cultural decision that are guided by, guided by nature and good reason. But when it comes to the, the elements of the service itself, God does care what we do. And by worshiping according to these principles, we are left free from cultural imposition that says, if you want to keep up with the trends, you have to do this. 
are not interested in keeping up with trends. Because you're interested in being faithful to what God has commanded. Because through worship, your view of God is being shaped. Through worship, how you view God is being shaped. Whether you see Him as casual or as holy and exalted and made known to you in Jesus Christ. And the attitude and the tone is to reflect holiness. Now I'll close by telling you that one of my heroes from church history is a relatively obscure woman from Scotland whose name is Jenny Geddes. She's relatively obscure because we have no idea when she was born and we have no idea when she died. But we do know that on Sunday, July 23rd, 1637, she did something that erupted a second wave of reformation and civil war in the kingdoms. Uh, The English parliament had required that the Book of Common Prayer be applied in worship services. And so at St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, Scotland, the, 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 the pastor came forward, opened up that parliament-required book, and started reading. And uh, unknown to the world before that moment, Jenny Geddes stood up, grabbed her stool, and threw it at the preacher's head because he was reading words from this parliament-required worship services that were unbiblical. And she stood up, threw the stool at his head, and said, How dare you in the house of God? And uh, walked out. And the streets erupted in a riot, and the Civil War broke out from that. But she's one of my heroes. (laughs) Which makes me, at first of all, immediately thankful that our pews are fastened to the floor. Chairs Chairs ain't, right? (laughs) Okay? But more truthfully, it, uh, it inspires the remembrance that we are to worship God in a way that he has prescribed in Scripture, being confident that it will honor him, rather than come up with something else from our own minds and think that God is pleased with it just because it draws a crowd. And these principles of Christian worship are essential to understanding biblical Christian worship. And so our question is, what will honor the Lord who is himself holy, holy, holy? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which challenges us in many ways. And Lord, we acknowledge that there is oftentimes great difficulty in understanding texts that are quite hard to see through. But Lord, when we see them, we see a holy God and we as sinful people that you have called near in Jesus Christ. And because we have been reconciled, Lord, we want to honor you. And so we pray that you would help to Lead us in worship that is faithful and reverent and honoring to your name, that regards you as holy, so that we might truly honor you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.